We're in 2 Corinthians, if you've got your Bibles. Part 14 tonight. Moving through this book, powerful book. So much in there. I don't want to miss any of it, but we've got to hurry up. Jesus is coming back. Chapter 7 tonight. I'm going to read chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Uh, 1 through 3 is what we're going to cover. I'm going to read a little more than that, but get to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and then I'm going to thank God for the word and read it to you. Father, tonight we thank you that we can come in the middle of the week and worship you in this place. Father, I pray that each one of us who's here tonight, Lord God, whatever our needs are, whatever our expectations are, Father, even things we're not even, we don't even realize we need, Lord, I pray you meet our needs tonight. That as the word goes forth, Lord, you would bring uh, freedom and liberty and balance to us, Lord. And you do it all by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're here. You've moved during worship and you're going to continue to move. And so move in our lives tonight. We invite you in Jesus' name. And the church said, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the flesh and spirit, protecting, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's so much in that one verse right there. Make room for us in your hearts, Paul speaking to the Corinthians. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. My confidence in you is great. My boasting in your behalf is great. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts on the outside, fears on the inside. But God, who comforts the discouraged, comforted us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort with, with which he was comforted among you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul's doing what he's called to do. He's on his missionary journeys. He's planting churches. He's strengthening churches that are already established. He's communicating to the Corinthians here, giving them uh, sound theology, and at the same time provoking them to follow after the Lord and grow in their faith. He's mentioning some things. The first three verses here of chapter 7 are all we're going to unpack tonight. Verse 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, let's, let's make sure we understand what he's talking about. It starts off talking about these promises. And you say, well, what promises? The promises that were given to us at the end of chapter 6. Sometimes you got to go back a little bit, right, and recap. So the promises were what? That if we would separate ourselves from the world and refuse to defile ourselves with unclean things. What? That God would accept us as sons and daughters. This is the promise Paul's talking about. What a promise it is. God says, come out from among me and be separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. What? And I will receive you. What a promise that is. Amen. God is telling us exactly what he requires from us, what? So that we can have sonship, so that we could be, you know, sons and daughters, that we could have him 
operating in our life as our heavenly father. We're all made in God's image, but not everybody knows God as father. That only comes by way of Jesus Christ. That only comes by way of relationship, amen? And God's saying, you know, here are the promises. Come out from all the filth and all the sin and all the things of the world and, and refuse it and reject it and refuse to even touch it or handle it. Separate yourself to, unto what? Unto me. It's an invitation tonight. And it's a good reminder for all of us that that's what the Lord requires for us. We need God as our Father. We cry out, Abba. We, we cry out to Him in prayer. But sometimes we shut ourselves off from Him. We, we put a lid on our own lives because we handle defiled things. And our sin separates us from a holy God. God, help us to value personal holiness in such a way that our connection to you is unhindered. So many things in this life require balance. Say balance. We are disciples, each one of us. You know, we're, we're not just believers. We're not just Christians. We are disciples. We're followers of Christ, each one of us. So, uh, you know, to be a disciple requires balance. And balance in life is not an easy thing to attain. How many people have a lot of stuff on their plate? Let me raise everything I can raise. Sometimes it's like, Lord, how do I balance all this? I pray these prayers. God, help me to be a good husband, a good father, a good pastor, a good neighbor. Help me. And on and on, because there's so many areas that, you know, we have to address, and that are important, and we have to prioritize them, but there's a lot of things on our plate, and somehow, some way, we, we have to balance all of those things if we're going to have, you know, a life that's blessed, and a life that has, you know, is marked by peace, and, and, and not to lose our minds. Do you know an unbalanced plate will make you lose your mind? Anybody lost their mind today? You know, the rest of you are lying. A couple times a day, just, you know, the overwhelming uh, tidal wave of things that need our attention. And God is telling us to separate ourselves in chapter 6. And then he's saying about these promises, uh, Beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit. Spiritual defilement. Think about that for a second. The flesh we get, but there's things that defile our spirit and there's spiritual, uh, you know, there's unfruitful dead works that we practice that defile our spirit. So he says, from every defilement of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let's kind of unpack that. But back to balance. Balance is something that each of us have to be aware of, and it's not an easy thing to attain, but we've got to discipline ourselves to get it. If you're sitting out there tonight and you're thinking, Pastor, you're talking right to me. Uh, my life is a mess. Um, everything's out of order. I, my priorities are out of whack. Don't raise your hand. This is not the altar call. But, you know, you're saying, I, I, I hear you about balance. One of my favorite movies, The Karate Kid, as soon as I read a text like this, I think of Mr. Miyagi. He told him what he said, you know, Daniel was standing on the front of the boat in the pond, if you remember the scene, and, and he's trying to balance, and he's doing all his little, you know, and Mr. Miyagi starts shaking the boat, and Daniel falls in the water, and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, you need to learn balance. 
And then Daniel's all shivering. Why? Why? Because balance is what makes everything else in life work. And it's a good lesson. I think Mr. Miyagi had the Holy Ghost when he said that, but, you know, I got no scripture for that. But I'm just, a powerful thing. Balance is the most important lesson we can learn because it's the key to mastering everything else. Having balance and having order and having our priorities straight, it opens the heavens so that God can pour a blessing upon us. Now, the balance we need in this case is a balance between sufficiently separating ourselves from this sinful world and at the same time remaining close enough to the lost to provoke them to get to know Jesus. Did you hear that? That was worth driving out here tonight. The balance that we are all looking for, you, my pastor, teacher, whoever you are, whatever you do as a Christian, the balance is how do I remove myself from the world so that the, the, the blight of it doesn't stain me, the filth of it doesn't compromise me, but at the same time, I'm close enough to the world that I can affect the lost. You know, sometimes we just get too into the world, and there's no difference between us and the world. And do you notice then all of a sudden, the lost don't want to have to hear anything we say. They're like, you're just like us. You, you, you complain like us. You, you're lazy like us. You, you, you know, you have the same struggles and sins and weaknesses as us. We're, we're supposed to come out and be separate. But it requires balance. So I need to touch nothing that's unclean and compromise myself, but I need to be all things to all men, as Paul said, that I might win some. I need to not remove myself from the world so much that I can't reach in and yank some people out of the muck and the mire and bring them into the kingdom. Amen? I hope that the Holy Spirit will burn this into each of our minds tonight so we remember every day that's the balance we're looking for. Now, verse 1 lays out for us the only way to get the balance that I just described. It says, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That was uh, that, that was a three-part message right there. Preachers love these three-point messages. There's one right there, and it gives us three uh, indicators of what it's going to take for us to get the balance. Number one, the first thing that's required for us to get balance is a personal cleansing. Say cleansing. If you showered today, you've cleansed your flesh. If you didn't, you smell like you want to be alone right now. Why? Because you got to wash every day. Otherwise, that flesh stinks. Spiritually, we need to be cleansed from the things of the flesh. And it needs not to be a corporate cleansing or a, a theological cleansing or a, a mental cleansing. It needs to be a personal cleansing. Amen? We, when we come to Jesus Christ, we actually need to be deprogrammed. Why? Because our, we've come out of the world and, and, and our default setting is everything fleshly, everything carnal, everything sensual, and now we can't think like that, act like that, live like that anymore. If you've ever seen a Christian that confesses Christ but doesn't come out of the world, they are a walking contradiction. They're confusing and they're usually miserable. 
because we, we need to each have that personal cleansing. It's not enough to just make a profession. It's not enough to just know the theology so that we can regurgitate it. But has Jesus really cleaned us and cleansed us and deprogrammed us? It needs to take place in each one of us. It's not an option. It's not just for super saints. It's not just for people who go into the ministry. It's for all of us. It's a necessity. What, what's the change all about? What does what the cleansing accomplish? We go from the old nature into the new creation. You and I are new creations. You're a new creature, amen? The creature part, I got down, but it's... <laughs> But my old man, my old nature, my old sinful reflexes, my own default setting, that's got to go. And, and there has to be a change, and it only comes by way of cleansing. Now, we can't cleanse ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit to do it. And all we have to do is cooperate with the cleansing process. You know, before you get clean, you got to get stripped. You weirdos go in the shower with all your clothes on. Come on, Wednesday night. You in the shower with your bathing suit on? No, you got to get stripped before you can get clean. Sometimes it's no fun getting stripped. It makes you vulnerable. It's a little embarrassing. It reveals tender things. But... We need that cleansing, and so we got to submit to this stripping, and we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to purify us so that the old man passes away and all things become new and we become new creations, amen? Number two, the second way we find the balance is this. Balance requires a personal cleansing, and balance requires personal holiness. What does it say here? It cleanses ourselves from all defilement of the flesh. Listen, perfecting Holiness. Uh, holiness is something that you and I need to pursue, amen? Positionally, we are holy. When we get born again and we get saved, God looks down at us. He doesn't see our sin anymore. The blood of Jesus covers it. He sees Christ. And so positionally, we're holy. Yet there's another element to holiness, and that's personal holiness when we actually, you know, have you ever met a, a person who got saved, but yet they still had a lot of you know, rough habits. And, and the, the process is sanctification that, you know, takes away those rough habits and takes away the rough edges and, and, and smooths them out and conforms us into the image of Christ. And as that happens, we become not only positionally holy, but personally holy. If you've ever met a saint that had harnessed purity that had harnessed personal holiness you can feel the anointing on a person like that purity is a beautiful thing it allows the anointing of god to just shine through it allows the light of the gospel to pierce the darkness but a lack of personal holiness dulls our light and it takes away our anointing so We've got a desire to be holy. We are not ever going to be perfect, and we're always going to struggle with the flesh to a certain degree. But we shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be struggling with the same things for a whole life and never getting, you know, free and never getting deliverance. We're supposed to be, you know, growing and, and, and overcoming. We're overcomers, amen. We're more than conquerors. Come on tonight. Somebody say amen. Amen. <laughs> 
so while we struggle and, and we're always going to have flesh to contend with, we have to embrace personal holiness and we have to desire to be holy on a personal level. Why? So we can resemble Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. Wow. That's New Testament, amen. That's for us. That's for us Christians, our disciples. The Holy One who called us, be holy yourselves. See, that's the personal element in all your behavior. Did you hear that? That's where the personal holiness works into our lives when it changes our behavior. I don't know about you, but I have behaviors that need to change. It's probably just me. But all of us need to consider our behavior and consider the fact that if we want to be holy, we're going to have to allow the Holy Spirit to change our behavior. So balance requires a personal cleansing. It also requires personal holiness. And number three, balance requires a personal fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. This is something that you know, many times in our happy, clappy, charismania, charismatic, you know, God's my pal and he's my buddy. We forget that he's a holy God and that we should fear the Lord. Now, I want to talk about the fear of the Lord, but listen to what the text says. Let us cleanse ourselves, personal cleansing, of every defilement of the flesh, perfecting holiness, personal holiness, in the fear of God. There's the third element. If we want balance, we've got to fear the Lord. Amen. I think it's a lack of the fear of the Lord in the church that allows the world to just act so wild like it is right now. When Christians don't fear God, what, what model, what, what hope does the world have? Amen. Back in our grandparents' generation or even further back, you know, when people lived, you know, tighter and, 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 you know, sin was still shameful. You remember, anybody remember those days? Things that they wouldn't even whisper in, in the dark now are just, you know, they're on daytime TV. And, and why is that? Because our nation, our culture, our world has lost the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is not dread or terror. If you're a new Christian and you hear, you know, that term, the fear of the Lord, and you think, what, are we supposed to be petrified of God? No, he's Abba. He's our daddy God. He's our father, amen? But listen, the fear of the Lord is not dread or terror or us groveling, you know, in the muck and the mire, and I'm not worthy. No, it's respect and awe for who God is, amen? It's respect and awe that, God, I'm not scared of you because you loved me with an everlasting love. I'm not scared of you, Father, because you're the lover of my soul. But I respect you, and I have awe for you, and I wouldn't dare de defy you or be disobedient to you or to ignore you. That's it. Mm, the fear of the Lord, beginning of wisdom. No wonder why our culture gets so dumb. Look at the things that are going on around us now. Just dumb. Doesn't even make sense. 
I don't even want to start listing some of the dumb stuff. I didn't even want to talk about it tonight. But you know what's going on out there. You know what's going on out there. And it's just foolishness. And why? Because they don't fear the Lord. And the church needs to once again fear the Lord to set the example. Yes, God's our Father, and that's an amazing thing. But let's not forget that he's also our judge. So we must revere him and respect him properly. Notice what it says here in the text, uh, you know, in 1 Peter 1.17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges, we're talking about God here in 1 Peter. If you address as father, that's us. Hey, Father, Abba. The one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Listen, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. It's powerful, isn't it? While we're here, we fear the Lord, amen? When we're in heaven and we see him as he is and we're delivered from this body of sin, there'll be no more pain, no more tears, no more fear, none of that. It'll all be swallowed up in love, amen? But while we're here on earth we, and we contend with this flesh, we have to exercise a healthy fear of the Lord. Conduct yourselves. Why? Because he's our judge. And what does it say? He judges impartially. That's, that's an important thing. We revere him and respect him. Why? Because he judges sin and he doesn't care who's doing it. You know, he doesn't have favorites. He doesn't overlook certain things. He doesn't just, oh, well, you know, Rick, you're my, you're my favorite, so I'm just going to wink at your sin. No, he's an impartial judge, amen? And that's why we should fear him because the wages of sin are death no matter what. Some of us, you know, who give ourselves over to sin and refuse to, you know, uh, embrace holiness, we're not going to lose our salvation, but we're going to have a really hard, hard existence here trying to juggle obedience to Christ and sinful fleshly behavior. So we might as well just tap out, say uncle, and fall in line. Amen. Verse 2, we had all that fun with just one verse. Don't rush through your Bible. Don't, don't rush through it. I read 17 chapters today and didn't understand any of it, you knucklehead. <laughs> right? I, people used to brag in Bible school, I read 72 chapters today. And what did you get out of it? <laughs> pride. You got pride out of it. You read 72 chapters. Okay, so one verse, we extract all the juice out of it. Verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. Paul talking to the Corinthians. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. So Paul says something interesting here as he starts off verse 2. Make room in your hearts. This is, this is the thrust of the verse, and it's a specific plea to the Corinthians. And what Paul's saying is, yeah, make room in your hearts for God. Yes, of course. Make room for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because we're, we're the body of Christ. But also, Paul is appealing to them to make room for you know, him in their hearts as a minister, as a mentor, as a spiritual father. Paul's like, make room in your hearts for me. And, and, and all of this works together. We've got to make room in our hearts for God. We've got to make room in our hearts for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we've got to make room in our hearts for those that God has given the body of Christ to teach us and discipline us and bring us to maturity, amen? And that's what he's appealing uh, to them there in verse two. Now, verse two contains a powerful reminder in the statement I just read, make room in your hearts. And the reminder is this, our hearts have a limited capacity. They do not have an unlimited capacity. See, when, when space is unlimited, 
you, you do things a little bit more sloppy. Anyone ever, you know, moved and you had a small little apartment, but they only had the 26-foot truck, so you rented that one? And then you got a lot of room. If you, did, if you rented the small truck and you got to fit, you know, 10 pounds of potatoes in a 5-pound bag, that's different, right? Come on, Wednesday night, don't fall asleep on me now. But, you know, you got lots of room. When you got lots of room, you, you're just a little bit sloppy. Our hearts have limited space. They have a limited capacity, not an unlimited one. You say, well, how do you know that? Because he says, make room. That means there's not unlimited room. There's a finite space. Now, we all know what it's like to run out of room. You know, how many people, you know, have run out of room in their homes? You got more stuff than space. Come on. <laughs> Confession is good for the soul. Mom, raise your hand. We've run out of room in our garages. Do you know, my, my poor dad, he can't even, you got to walk around the garage like this. You know. <laughs> right? Like we started off with garage. Now there's all this stuff. You run out of room in your house, in your garage, you know, uh, on your property, your driveway. It's full of your car, broken down car, somebody else's car. You got this. Your shed is full. Your property has stuff piled up all around it. You got no room left on your lawn. We know what it's like to run out of room in our house, in our driveway. And unfortunately, we know what it's like to run out of room in our clothes, especially our pants. <laughs> Thanksgiving's coming. Break out the stretchy pants. It's one day. But if you, ever, if you ever had a bunch of clothes in your closet that don't fit you and you've run out of room, I know this one stings a little bit. <laughs> but we all know what it's like to run out of room. And when our hearts have run out of room, when our hearts are fully packed with the cares of this world, with the pleasures and the treasures of life, with the baggage of material excess, when our hearts are just jam-packed, there's no room left for the things of the kingdom. How's your heart today? Paul says, make room in your heart. That means there's some things we got to get out and throw out and just let go. Do you ever see somebody trying to let go of something that they don't want to throw out? Maybe at their yard sale, they're like, how much is that? It's not for sale. <laughs> they don't want to let it go. And that's the way we get, too, with all kinds of things that clutter up our hearts. And then God says, hey, I need you. I want to use you. Here's your opportunity. God, I, I, I don't have any room. I don't have any time. I don't have any energy. I'm busy. Paul's reminded us we need to make room in our hearts. Remember the sad reality of this world when Jesus was born into it. The town was packed full. The inns were packed full. And there was no room for Jesus when he came. Is there any room in our hearts for Jesus right now? Us Christian people, us disciples, us believers, are our hearts so jam-packed that there's no room in the inn for Jesus? God help us. Verse 2 continues with Paul giving a rundown of how uh, the apostolic ministry was conducted. His ministry was conducted in such a way that he could, he could make these claims without fear of contradiction. And it's powerful. So he says, make room in your hearts. Now listen to what Paul says. This is powerful because he's not just, you know, riffing. He's not just being rhetorical. He's making statements that are true or they would never be in the word of God. 
He says, we, what, that's him and his team uh, doing the missions and planting the churches. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, and we have taken advantage of no one. It's quiet. Those are bold claims. He says, make room in your heart and then fill it with God. And then when God is using you, make sure you conduct yourself in a way that models how Paul and the leadership in the early church conducted themselves. There are three lights, highlights here. He says, I have wronged no one, or we have wronged no one. And I want to I stop there for just a second. You and I need to treat people fairly. We need to treat, oh, j- just people we like? No, everybody. We need to treat them fairly. We need to treat our spouses fairly, our children fairly, our brothers and sisters in the Lord fairly, our unsaved neighbors fairly, the annoying coworker at work fairly. We need to be fair and gracious. Paul said, we have wronged no one. That's a powerful statement, and that's one that we should be able to make. Treating everyone fairly can be a tall order sometimes. Most of us have wronged people during our lives. It's getting quieter and quieter. Now nobody will even look at me. They're like, look at me, look at me, look at me. All of us have wronged people during our lives. So when we get wronged, let's not act like, "Ah, where did this come from? (laughs) Well, Rick... You're reaping what you sowed. You see, and this is why we got to be very diligent about not treating people badly because that's going to come back around to us. You know, when we sow something, we're going to reap it. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of things that I've sown that I don't want to reap. I'm praying for crop failure. Can we have a drought, Lord? Can we have the locusts come and take it out? No, son, you're going to reap it. So Paul says we have wronged no one. We need to treat people fairly. And we've all mistreated others. We've all sown that. We need to be humble. Uh, We need to never say, why me? I don't deserve this. You know what? But we need to strive to do wrong to nobody. We should live in a way that really minimizes us mistreating others. And when we do, we should humble up and apologize. We should apologize. Well, they, you know, they're going to hold it against me. Apologize anyway. Well, you know, they did 10 things to me and I did apologize anyway. Well, they're, they're my kids. I'm not apologizing to them. Apologize anyway. Amen. Amen. The second claim that Paul makes here, he says, we've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. This is, this is an interesting study right here. When we live recklessly, when we sin with our mouths or conduct ourselves in a way that is contrary to the scripture and we know it, when we push the envelope, yeah, God will forgive us, but we need to realize this. When we do things like that, we have an influence on others. And God help us if it's a corrupting influence. As a man of God, if I'm doing things and pushing the envelope and, and, and you know, living on the line and people are seeing that, my, my sons are seeing that, the church is seeing that, then as a leader, I could be responsible for corrupting others. Got to be in a tight leash when you're a pastor. One of my teachers at Bible school used to say, when you're a pastor, you got to watch where you spit. Think about that. 
Because people want to judge you for every little thing. But as Christians, you say, well, I, you know, that stinks for you, Pastor. We'll pray for you. But you, you, when you guys go out in the world, as Christians, the world does the same thing to you. I get it from the church. You get it from the world. But, you know, and, and they're going to look at everything you do, and they're going to judge it, and they're going to criticize it, and they're going to critique it, and they're going to bring it up. And so we have to be very careful about how we live. Why? Because we don't want reckless, loose living to corrupt others. It's a sobering thought to think that we could actually make, be making other people stumble with our loose living and sinful behavior and bad theology. God is going to hold us responsible for that. Fear the Lord because he is our judge. And I don't want to have to stand in heaven and, you know, and, and, and account for, you know, the fact that you were supposed to lead people in righteousness, but you made them stumble and, and you corrupted them. You know, what the scripture says about if anyone harms one of these little ones, these little children, it'd be better for a millstone. Now, we're under grace. We're not getting millstones, but we are going to answer for what we do. The people in the world who are ungodly and wicked and evil, who are corrupting children, who are pushing, you know, hypersexuality on them and confusing their genders and trafficking and all the wickedness in the world, they're going to be wearing millstones for eternity. But before we get too excited about that, let's just remember, we can corrupt others with our loose living. Number three, the third thing that Paul says here about his ministry, we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. You know what? Within the church, if you've been around for any length of time, if you've been to other ministries, uh, there, chances are you've probably had some bad experiences in the church. Can I get a amen or a amen? Okay, so exploiting others to grease the wheels of ministry happens a lot in the body of Christ. When leaders put too much pressure on people to, to do this and to do that and to be in charge of this and head this up and be at every event and be here every night of the week, that, 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 that used to be the way it was when I grew up. It's quiet now. If you've ever been to a church like that where there was just too much of a demand, then you, you couldn't have balance in your life. I remember watching these people who were trying to drive the sheep, Tim, and I looked at their lives and there was no balance there. You, you, you don't have a relationship with your wife. Your kids are growing up without you. Everybody's mad at you. Nobody likes you. We have taken advantage of no one. Sheep routinely get abused, misused, and fleeced by those in the body of Christ. And it's a shame, and we need to fear the Lord because we're going to answer for that. We should never purposely take advantage of anyone. We shouldn't lean so hard on others and put undue pressure on them and guilt them into doing things because that crosses the line. God doesn't drive sheep. He leads them. A leader that drives sheep is not a godly leader. Don't ever let anyone drive you. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. These three statements are powerful 
uh, because they were all true, what Paul says about his ministry, and they serve as a model of conduct for all of us. We should wrong no one, corrupt no one, and take advantage of no one. Verse 3, we're going to finish up with verse 3 tonight. I do not speak to condemn you, Paul says. So he's given this stuff here. He says, you know, make room in your hearts. You know, here's the way we've conducted ourselves. We've wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. But verse 3, I'm not telling you this to to make you feel bad. I don't speak to condemn you, for I, I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. So Paul's doing something here that I find interesting, and we need to take note of it. When he says, I do not speak to condemn you, he's realizing that what he just said could, could, if it's misconstrued, make people feel guilty or bad or condemned. And he's clarifying the statements that he just made because he doesn't want them to be misunderstood. Say misunderstood. I do not speak to condemn you. So I'm clarifying this, guys. I didn't say all that to make you feel bad. You know, we need to realize that sometimes we can say things in a way that we don't, either we don't articulate them well or people don't hear what we said and that we sometimes have to be careful that we don't confuse people or, or make them feel judged and, 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 and that we were misunderstood. So we need to be humble enough at times to take the time to clear the air. Oh, you know, I said that, and it, you know, it ruffled a few feathers, and I think I was misunderstood, and I saw some people, they looked, you know, and they were like, oh, well, you know, it's gone. Let's just forget it and move on. It's important that we take the time to clear the air with others, especially in our family, especially in the body of Christ. If you have conflict, if you, if you have a spat, if you, if you, if you get into a, a, a tiff with someone, take the time to humble yourself and clear the air. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying something that he knows can be misunderstood. He's saying something that there's a possibility that people would misconstrue what he said. So he takes the time to clear the air with others. Do it with your family. Do it with those in the church. Do it with your neighbors. Do it with the people you work with in your office. Why? Because misunderstandings create drama. Misunderstandings create hard feelings. It's crazy. You say something, somebody thinks, you know, I've been preaching before and people think like, you know, uh, he, you know he, how did he know that about me? He's been like, you know, he, he's talking to my wife or something or he, you know, he's reading my mail. And they, and, and they actually get angry like, you know, how did you know? I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm just letting the Holy Ghost move. And I, people get mad at me. And I remember this one guy was mad at me. Well, you know, you, you, you exploited me. You uncovered me. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, blah, blah, blah. I said, I didn't know that about you. Thanks for telling me, you knucklehead. But I'm like, brother, I'm just preaching the word. I'm not. And, and it took a while. And he's like, oh, really? Uh, uh, all right. Uh, all right. I'm sorry. Take the time to clear the air. Amen. A little humility goes a long way, but a little misunderstanding can create a lot of drama. He didn't just tell them that his ministry was conducted in such a, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, a solid way. He, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't telling them, you know, we've not done anything wrong or we haven't corrupted anyone. Or, you know, we're above board. We're, you know, we're just so, you know, everything is in order here. He's not telling them that to manipulate them or to guilt them or to co- coerce them into compliance. And, and they, some, some of them would have took it like that, you know. So he took the time to make sure they understood what he was saying. Now, let me say something, you know, when it comes to manipulating or guilting or coercing others, be very wary of those who tell you how wonderful they are to you. Do you ever have a boss? Do you know how lucky you are to work here? You know, the same boss is like, uh, the beatings will continue to the morale improves. You know, like, oh, you know, you're so lucky to work here. You're so. One time I walked into the town hall, and there was a lady behind the desk, and there was some guy complaining about his taxes. They just raised them. And, and when I heard the number, it was exorbitant. And she said, you know what, but you, do you know how lucky you are to live in New York here? And I had an aneurysm and fell down in the lobby. <laughs> I'm like, uh, they had this lady at the desk so brainwashed that she was like telling this guy, don't complain. In fact, open your wallet and give us more money. You're, you're lucky to live here in the sprawling metropolis of Dover. Just hand over your paycheck. I'm thinking, wow. Be very weary of people who tell you how wonderful they've been to you, how good they are to you, you know, how, how kind and how lucky you are. Listen, that's bait. And let me tell you something. There's a hook in there because they are looking to manipulate you or co- coerce you or to get you to believe a lie. Paul says we're not doing any of that. We're just listing these things here to show that we're above board. And the last part of verse 3 uh, the next part of verse 3 is actually really beautiful where Paul sincerely tells the Corinthians what they mean to him and how committed he is to them. He says, you are in our hearts. It's beautiful, isn't it? You know, there's some people that you interact with but you, you, you might not have a relationship with and you never think about them a second thought ever. Paul's saying that's not the type of relationship we have. I, I, I see myself as a spiritual mentor, a spiritual father, and you're my spiritual children, and you are in my heart. That implies a deep emotional, spiritual connection when Paul says that. And, and that's what we're to have in the body of Christ. We're more than just, you know, co-laborers or co-workers or teammates. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, Amen. We need that emotional, spiritual connection to have each other in our hearts to be thinking about each other all day. I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. You know, you know I know you're going through something, so I'm, I'm storming heaven, and I'm, I'm calling your name before the throne of God, amen? So this connection that Paul has with the Corinthians serves as a model for us that we, we can't just come to church here and listen to the preaching and, and run to our cars and not fellowship with each other. It's superficial, how are you today? <laughs> don't tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> we have to get past that. We got to build a deeper connection. And that emotional, spiritual connection that Paul said, said, you're in our hearts. Though he was an apostle, though he had a, a huge job, though he was constantly on missionary journeys, all of these churches, all of these believers, every single one of them he prayed for without ceasing, they were in his heart, and it serves as a model for us. 
we are a family. We are the body of Christ. We are the fellowship of the unashamed, amen. We're going to spend eternity together. Let's love each other while we're here, amen. The last part of verse 3, it almost sounds like Paul's being dramatic. He says, to die together and to live together. It's life and death. I love you so much. You're in my heart. And, and we're connected in life and in death. Think about that. That's the truth of the bonds that we have as believers who are in the body of Christ. The fact that we are connected together through our relationship with Jesus actually transcends death. There's people who are family. There's people who are relatives that we're not going to see in eternity. But listen, every one of your brothers and sisters, we're going to be together with them forever. Our relationship, our connection uh, with each other transcends death. In life, we're connected. We're the family of God. We're the body of Christ. Let's help each other to, to find our purpose in the Lord. Let's help each other to accomplish the mission of the church. And not even death can separate us. And Paul loved the church that much. The Bible says that we know we have passed from life unto death when we love the brethren. Let's bow our heads tonight. For all of you who just found out you have to love me, and that you're going to live next door to me in heaven forever. I'm praying for you. But let's just take a minute in God's presence. Father, we thank you tonight for all the truths that were talked in here, Lord, the, the models of conduct, the models of behavior that Paul laid out for us. Lord, we, we realize that... Uh, we need balance in our lives. Father, I pray for myself and for every one of my brothers and sisters that is having a hard time balancing what's on their plate. God, give us wisdom to push some of the things that don't belong there off and to prioritize the things that you have put on our plate, Lord, and give us the wisdom and the Holy Spirit knowledge to balance those things. Balance is the most important thing. It's the key lesson because it helps us master everything else in our Christian walk. Father, I pray tonight, Lord God, that we would allow you to personally cleanse us, teach us personal holiness, and that we would once again have the fear of the Lord in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, in our nation. Bring the fear of the Lord back where our culture is spun out of control Father, I pray that, Lord, once again, the church would begin to fear the Lord and it would trickle down to the world around us. Father, I pray today that we, like Paul, would live above board, that we would have our brothers and sisters in our hearts, that we would... Uh, care about the body of Christ, that we'd be praying for the nation of Israel, that we would wrong no one, corrupt no one, and take advantage of no one. Let us be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give him praise tonight.